did not create Valentine's Day, but it did help promote it, as Valentine's were some of the very first and most popular cards that the company printed and sold. But at its root, the story goes back to a man who was committed to helping people honor the word of God, even when that meant disobeying civil authorities. Valentine was going to do the right thing, even when it cost him. In our passage this morning, Jesus is going to dinner at the house of a Pharisee. He dines with a man who would have been prominent in the town and in the local synagogue. This was a man of religious authority. In that culture, that likely meant he was a man of civil authority as well. But this dinner is going to be interrupted by someone committed to doing what she felt she had to do. And this Pharisee is not going to be what love looks like and where it comes from. So look with me, beginning with verse 36. Luke 7, verse 36. One of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him. And he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at table. Okay, stop there. So our Lord is continuing his ministry. He's likely still in Galilee, the northern region of Israel. He's going from village to village. He's preaching the gospel. He's healing the sick. And at each town, Jesus and his disciples are dependent upon the hospitality of others. Jesus has an itinerant ministry. He will later say, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. And therefore, as Jesus goes from town to town, we often find him accepting invitations to dinner at people's homes. Remember last Sunday's passage, the Son of Man has come eating and drinking. His ministry included formal times of preaching and teaching in synagogues and to crowds out on hillsides and on plains. But Jesus also does a great deal of teaching and ministry over plates of food and cups of drink. And we know that Jesus regularly went into the homes of those who were looked down upon by society. He was called a friend of tax collectors and sinners because he broke bread with those sorts of people. But Luke is here telling us that Jesus wasn't exclusive in his dining companions. He would also accept invitations from the religious leaders, even from the Pharisees whom he regularly preached against and publicly condemned. You have to be careful not to put people in a box. The Pharisees as a group of religious leaders were full of pride and self-righteousness. They rejected Jesus because they thought his calls to repentance should be for other people, but not for them. They strove to keep the Mosaic law to a T. And at the same time, they envied Jesus because the crowds loved him. And they rejected his claim to be God. They were disgusted that a a holy prophet would be seen with the greatest sinners in society. But even within that group, there were exceptions. 
Remember Nicodemus? He was a Pharisee, but he was willing to hear what Jesus had to say and take it to heart. Although even he came secretively and by night. So what about the man in our passage? What about this Pharisee? Why is he inviting Jesus to dinner? Well, I think in this case it's unlikely that he genuinely wanted to hear and consider Jesus' words. Much more likely is that we are seeing here what we saw begin back in Luke chapter 6, where we were told that the Pharisees were now looking for reasons to accuse Jesus. The Pharisees have begun looking for opportunities to trip him up, to ask him questions that will trap him, that will lead him to say words that they can use against him, both before the the court of public opinion and before the court of the Sanhedrin. We can expect that this Pharisee has invited his friends, other Pharisees, people of like mind, to be at this dinner I can imagine Peter and John coming to Jesus and saying, Master, this is a trap. This is a dinner invitation you may not want to accept. But he did. We see that he was willing to spend time with all kinds of people, to break bread with all kinds of people, tax collectors, sinners, also Pharisees. Look at verses 37 and 38. And behold, that means, and look, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment, and standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears And wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. There's a lot in those two verses. So first off, don't be confused. There are two accounts of women anointing Jesus with oil during his ministry. There is this account... And there is the account of Mary, the sister of Lazarus, anointing Jesus just before his crucifixion. Some critics have tried to say that these are variations of the same event. That we're getting two different accounts of the same event. But that just makes absolutely no sense. Other than having a woman who anoints Christ with oil, the two accounts have nothing else in common. In that later event, the woman will be someone that we know, Mary, the sister of Lazarus. The event will take place in a friendly environment, Lazarus's home. It will take place at a moment of great significance, right before Jesus' death. In fact, we are told that Mary's anointing of Jesus was an anointing of his body for burial. And when Judas Iscariot protests about the cost of the oil, Jesus will use that moment to say a word about his coming departure. The poor you will always have with you, but you do not always have me. This account in Luke 7 is much earlier in his ministry. 
It takes place in a different town, in a different region of Israel, in a different context, and it leads us to a completely different lesson. This is not the house of a close friend. This is a Pharisee's house. This is not a woman that Jesus knew well. We're never even told her name. And the lesson that Christ teaches through this event is a different lesson, a hugely important one, and one we're going to unpack together. So don't mix up the two accounts the way some try and do. Who is this woman? We are only told that she is a woman of the city, so she's from that town, and that she is a sinner. Now, of course, all people are sinners, but this word was used to refer to women involved in a particular kind of sin. She was a woman of that sort, a prostitute, a harlot. The Mosaic law forbade religious prostitution, which was very common in the ancient world. People would go and lie with temple prostitutes as an act of worship to pagan gods. Uh, Mosaic law absolutely forbids that. But there actually is no law in the Mosaic law forbidding prostitution outright. And at every stage of Israel's history, we find that there were prostitutes in that society. This woman is called a sinner because the people understood that this was a sinful practice. It's an act that's against the sexual morality handed down by God. Women of this sort were looked upon as vile, as filthy, as the lowest rung in society. Remember, most women in those days were provided for through their connection to men. So a daughter was under the care of her father until she was given away in marriage. And then the woman was under the care of her husband. If her husband died, she was under the care of her sons. And there were other safeguards in the law like leveret marriage to help make sure that women would always be provided for. But in practice, some women were not truly being provided for. And there were women who found themselves in dire straits for all kinds of different reasons. And in that society, for a woman who was on her own, her options were very limited. No doubt prostitution was the last resort for many of these women. It doesn't mean it wasn't wrong. It certainly was. But for many, it was a sin that was motivated by desperation. Of course, in every generation, there have also been women who chose this profession. Women who found that they could use their seductive powers to do quite well for themselves. Mount Hermon, this is not some ancient practice that has no bearing on our current day. Today, because especially of the rise of internet pornography... There are untold numbers of both women and men, many of them very young, who are selling the use of their bodies. Only they are not getting paid by the person they are sleeping with as traditional prostitution. They are getting paid by the company that is filming the act. Pornography has led to an entire industry of prostitution. 
And just like in ancient times, you have some of these folks who have chosen to go into this profession, seeking to do well for themselves. And you also have many, many others who found themselves in absolutely desperate circumstances, and they are being taken advantage of by these companies. And now those pictures and those videos, they're there on the websites. The company owns them. And you've got thousands of people walking around just hoping and praying that their parents or their children or their co-workers or their friends don't discover the truth of what they've done. There are 10,000 reasons why pornography is vile and why we should hate it and flee from it. Certainly the irreversible damage it does to the people preyed upon by companies like these is one reason to stay away. Don't be complicit. Don't support this modern prostitution. You should run away from pornography for the sake of your own soul and your own testimony, but you should also run away from it so that you will not be taking part in this satanic scheme that is destroying lives and relationships all around us. Larry Flint, founder of Hustler magazine, creator of a pornography empire, died this week. Assuming he died as he lived, rejecting Christ. Can you imagine what awaited him on the other side? God executes vengeance on behalf of those who have been oppressed and victimized. And God executes vengeance on behalf of his own glorious name. Because we who were made to be image bearers and to represent him in this universe use the lives that he's given us to blaspheme his character and his name. Don't misunderstand me. I know that my own sins are more than I can fathom. But have you considered what Mr. Flint must be experiencing at this very moment if the Bible is true? That man was duped by the devil and now his sins, his outrageous, grievous sins that brought despair to millions are on his own head. Friend, when you're tempted to click on that website or follow that link, remember that even in that one second peak, You've just helped bring ad money to these companies and you've made yourself complicit in the destruction of lives. Don't do it. Of course, in our day, there's still traditional prostitution, the epidemic of Internet prostitution. And let's be honest, there are plenty of people in Rocky Mount, North Carolina, a lot of women, some men, maybe even some dear saints in this room who found themselves at some point in their lives in a desperate situation and they allowed themselves to be taken advantage of. Not talking about rape, not talking about sexual abuse. Those are horrific. That's not the sin in view in our passage. The sin in view in our passage is someone who has voluntarily chosen to commit sexual acts outside of marriage for gain of some kind. 
And most of these women of, of ill repute that we meet in the pages of the Gospels, we find them broken, we find them hurting, they seem to know their sin, and we find them longing for forgiveness. And what we see again and again is that the Pharisees treated such women with absolute hostility. And we see again and again that our Savior treats such women with compassion and with mercy and with love. Indeed, the shocking fact that we discover as we read through the Gospels is this, that these broken women were far better off than the Pharisees because these women had been humbled and knew their need for grace while the Pharisees were self-righteous and were therefore much further away from the kingdom of God. Now, you might ask, how did this woman get into this house? I mean, here, here's Jesus having dinner at a Pharisee house, and suddenly there's a, a woman of the night in the room. That can't be right. She, she doesn't belong here. He would not have invited her. Well, it's important to understand the context. Dinners with a rabbi like Jesus were often public events. Sometimes the meals were happening indoors, other times in the courtyard of the house just inside its main walls. Their homes did not look like our homes. The invitees would have been placed at a table, and certainly at a Pharisee's house you could expect a fine meal, something far better than what most of the other people could afford. The attendees, those invited, would all be men. But other people from the community both men and women, would be allowed to come hang around the outside of the table to listen in, especially when the dinner was being held in the front courtyard of the home. And since these Pharisees were trying to trap Jesus, trying to humiliate him publicly, we should expect that folks were welcome from the community to come and be spectators at this dinner. Frankly, not a few of the folks were probably hoping to score a doggy bag of leftovers when the men at the table left. Tables could take on a number of different shapes, but the guests reclined on couches, on furniture similar to like a modern chase. So the, the people at the table, their heads would have been towards the table. Their tables were lower than ours, by the way. And their feet extended behind them on couches. This lounging approach to dinner reflects the fact that dinners for them were about way more than just food. Dinners often lasted for hours and hours and were full of conversation. And this explains why John's gospel mentions that at the Last Supper, the apostle John's head was near the bosom of Christ. It's not because John's head was hanging way down the way da Vinci famously painted it. It's because John was sitting next to Jesus and they were both lounging on these typical dinner sofas. And it explains why in our passage here, we're told that the woman was standing behind Jesus' feet. She was standing at the end of Jesus' couch where his feet were. Now, why was this woman here? 
Well, Luke tells us, verse 37. Verse 37. When she learned that he, Jesus, was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. So this lady is not coming in order to investigate what this man Jesus has to say. No, this lady is clearly someone who has already encountered Jesus in the past. This is someone who has already been affected, radically changed by the truth that Jesus taught. Remember, the passage just before this, here in Luke's gospel, recounts Jesus preaching to the crowds on the occasion when messengers from John the Baptist came to him. Matthew's gospel gives us that same account, but he gives us more information about what was preached on that day. In fact, his message ended with these words. All things have been handed over to me by my father. No one knows the son except the father and no one knows the father except the son and anyone to whom the son chooses to reveal him. Come to me. All who labor and are heavy laden. And I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. And so J.C. Ryle and many other commentators believe this woman may well have been in attendance when Jesus preached that message. So many other people in her life pushed her away, wanted her far away from them. She is a sinner. Jesus called for sinners to come to him. He did not push them away. He offered them rest. The Pharisees had no message of hope for this lady. Except for her to come back to the Mosaic law and hope she can be obedient enough to outdo her past sinful actions. That was overwhelming. How could she possibly make up for the things that she had done? How could she possibly do enough to restore peace with the holy God of Israel? Just the thought of of trying to earn God's favor back was overwhelming. It was a yoke that was burdensome and heavy. And here comes Jesus, this man claiming to be the son of God. And he's here with a message from the father. And that message is all who come to Christ can find rest. All who come to Christ can throw off the yoke of obedience to the Pharisees and all their traditions and all their man-made rules. Submitting to Christ, trusting Him, following Him, this is the way of salvation. And His yoke is light. I wonder if you've ever had an experience like may have happened for this dear woman. Have you experienced either side of it? Have you felt the burden of your sin and the impossible task of trying to make things right with God on your own? Have you ever felt in your soul the judge's declaration, guilty, guilty because of your many sins? Have you seen that there is a great chasm between you and God? A chasm of your own making because you've chosen to worship yourself instead of Him. To serve self instead of God. 
And have you felt the despair of realizing that there is absolutely nothing you can do to cross that chasm? Like the murderer who is ashamed of what he has done, but realizes it can never be undone. Have you felt on your shoulders the weight of your past actions? Have you felt in your soul the weight of the words that you have spoken? The times when you spat in the face of God because you knew what you were about to do was wrong and then you chose, you determined, you decided to go right ahead and do it anyway. And now, what did the Pharisees say to you? Go back to the Mosaic Law and see if you can be obedient enough that maybe God will spare you. And not just the Mosaic Law, they had their 660 extra commandments. Just to make sure you're doing everything you can. If you felt that burden and you've come to Christ, you've also experienced what it is to have that yoke lifted off of you. Sweet relief. See the amazing mercy of God as He bridged the chasm for you through Jesus Christ. No longer is it on you to do the impossible. No longer is it on you to try and fix yourself, to undo what can't be undone. Through Jesus Christ, God has done absolutely everything necessary to reconcile you to Himself, to give you peace with Him, to take away your sins, to bring you to eternal life in heaven. Submitting to Jesus as King is thrilling, for He gives you a heart to do what is right. Rather than seeking to obey out of slavish fear, we now obey out of gratitude, out of amazement that He has loved us, died for us, purchased us with His blood. Of course, this woman did not yet know about the cross. That hadn't happened yet. But she had heard enough of the teaching of Jesus to believe that by trusting Christ and becoming His follower... There was still hope for someone like her. And by the end of this passage, we're going to see that her hope was well placed. So this woman had likely gone from a place of personal despair. She had gone from a place of personal hopelessness to that of of great joy and seeing there's still a hope for someone like me and this man, Jesus Christ. And this news was so overwhelming, so encouraging, so freeing that when she heard that Jesus was dining at this Pharisee's house, she just had to find a way to show that she wanted to be his follower. She had to find some way to show her love, her gratitude, her devotion. And so she took an alabaster flask, a container made of white gypsum. This flask was full of ointment. Particular word used here refers to an oil made from olive oil and then spices are mixed in to create a soothing perfume that both it smells good, but it's also used to soothe rough skin. It was a common practice for household servants to wash the feet of guests who came into a home. This is a step above that. 
This is the way that a servant would treat a great dignitary. If King Herod himself had shown up for dinner at this Pharisee's house, the Pharisee would have instructed a servant to anoint Herod's feet with an oil like this. This was costly stuff. And in keeping with that culture, this woman had determined to show this man Jesus the best way she knew how, that she honored him, that she was ready to follow him, that he was her Lord. And so she comes to a place where she was not welcome. And as she comes to the deed itself, emotion overtakes her. She begins to weep. The tears begin to pour down her face and onto the feet of Jesus. And as she cries, caught up in the emotion, she not only washes his feet in her tears, but she pulls her long hair over her shoulders. She uses them to dry his feet so that they will be ready for the anointing oil. Before she applies the oil, she kisses his feet. In the oriental way, there was no better way to express to someone that you were ready to serve them and to follow them. My guess is that she dared not speak a word. In that culture, and especially in this context, she would have been kicked out immediately for interrupting the men at the table. So she just comes to his feet and begins to weep and begins to anoint his feet. She has found a way to express what she's trying to express, that this man has given her hope, and she is now ready to follow him. Now, next Sunday or next time, we'll deal with the obvious issue this created. How could Jesus let this go on? This is not a household servant anointing his feet. This is a harlot. Does he not see how this looks? But none of that matters right now. What matters is what's happening in this woman's heart. She has found hope in Jesus Christ, and that hope will be rewarded when at the end of this passage, Jesus assures her her sins have been forgiven. Are yours? Have you come to that moment in your life when you found some way to surrender to Christ, to say to him, I will follow you, you are my Lord, I put my hope in you. Have you come to that moment where you stopped the way you were living, you put aside your past sin and you said, I am going to come to Jesus and become his disciple and him is the way of salvation. Have you been willing to make it known the way she came and publicly made it known? The New Testament teaches us to do it through baptism. Church membership. This is how we come and say to Jesus, I belong to you. I will follow you. And I don't care who sees it. I don't care who knows it. And finally... When was the last time you worshipped Jesus from the depths of your heart the way this woman did? When was the last time you sat in his presence and maybe even without words just loved him? 
when we allow ourselves to get disconnected from Christ's word or disconnected from church or disconnected from prayer, our sins begin to appear small and so Christ begins to appear not so great. But when we are abiding in the truth, then we are seeing afresh every day just how great our sins are, but how much greater is Christ and His grace. And we love Him and we cannot help want to sit at his feet and worship him. You were created to worship. Whatever else is happening in your life, both corporately and privately, make sure you are giving worship to your king. This is the priority. Everything else flows from this. Sit at the feet of Jesus. Hear him speak. Admire his glory and worship him. Let's pray.